0: in Australia. So let's get on with the show and we're starting off by talking with Greg Mullins from the Climate Council. Listeners you're on the Beyond Zero Emissions show and my name is Erin Jones and I'm very pleased to have on the line today Greg Mullins and Greg Mullins is a councillor with the Climate Council but the topic that we're going to talk about probably applies also a lot more so to his former role as Commissioner of Fire and Rescue New South Wales. So thanks for joining us, Greg.
1: Uh, pleasure, Aaron.
0: Now in this, uh, you know, so far this year we've had record early temperatures, and um, particularly in New South Wales and Queensland, a ferocious onslaught of the fire season. So. How do you see going forward the country's capacity to adapt and fight and fight these? Uh, what's the new normal of of these kind of early fires?
1: Well, look. First of all, I suppose it needs to be said that um, together with every other chief of every other fire service in Australia who um, joined with me to sign a statement, former chiefs, sorry, who signed a statement earlier this year, calling on the government. To take stronger action on emissions and climate change um we're not at all surprised by any of this um, we our bushfire seasons in new south wales a um, hundred years of observations led to the legislation that said it starts on october 1st it rarely do you get anything before that just about every year now we have major bushfires starting in the first week of august as we did this year last year 2013. um as much bush burnt in New South Wales today as the whole bushfire season in 2001-2, oh, sorry, over the last two years, and as many houses burnt as 2001-2, which was a very severe season, so 109 homes the third week in October. So, look, it, it's,
0: it's... And that's a not a long time frame you're talking about. I mean, we're not talking about the difference between 100 years. You, you were saying that's in from, from the early 2000s.
1: Well, look, why are you having people like me? Um, You know, I could be happily retired and I I don't like the media limelight, particularly when it's a controversial issue. Why it's a controversial issue, I don't know, um, because the science is extremely clear. But we're seeing all these changes, but it's coming far more rapidly than we thought it would and the data suggested it would back just 10 years ago. So... um, We're getting fires that we simply can't fight. And I point to California, uh, talking to my colleagues in California, I've worked over there, I've worked on bushfires over there. Uh, They lost 19,000 homes last year and about 100 people lost their lives. The year before they lost 9,000 homes. So there's just been a step change throughout the world. Um, Countries like the UK, Sweden, Greenland, the Arctic Circle, where we never used to have bushfires, they're now getting bushfires. And here in Australia, we're one of the most fire-prone places on the planet. It's just getting worse and worse.
0: Mm, And those sort of numbers, I mean, that loss of, well, of life, of course, you know, the numbers of property that you're talking about there in California, I mean, that's the size of a kind of a regional town, 19,000 homes. That's an enormous number.
1: Well, an an actual township, a large township, um, I think population about uh, 20,000. The town of Paradise in California was wiped off the map. Um, Kmart shopping centres, petrol stations, motels, homes, um, light industry—all gone um, on in one day. And this is the scale of the problem. And in California, you have as many aircraft as you need. Water bombing aircraft, hundreds, oh, thousands of fire engines and crews you can call on. But even there. They can't keep up with the pace of climate change, what it's doing to the planet, planet, what it's doing to the bush, and the sort of uh, disasters that are unfolding.
0: Mm. And that's a really important point around those resources because just outline for our listeners, traditionally what have been the fire seasons in the Australian context in the different jurisdictions because there's a fair amount of sharing of resources, isn't there?
1: Well, look, that's right. No, I started fighting fires in '71 with my father who was a volunteer firefighter for more than 60 years and I'm back as a volunteer firefighter now but the fire seasons used to come progressively from the north to the south so Queensland, southeast Queensland would get a fairly mild bushfire season each year um, it wasn't known as a state that had a bushfire problem per se but the Premier has now said well we're well and truly a bushfire state because year after year we're getting fires like they get in New South Wales and Victoria, and we're losing homes. Um, It would go into northern New South Wales, hit Sydney around November through to January, and then head south, and then Victoria, South Australia, and Tasmania would get their seasons. What that enabled was a sharing of resources regionally. Um, So forestry, national parks, rural fire, fire brigade could send resources from the north coast down towards Sydney, um, Victoria, and there's Victorian firefighters in New South Wales at the moment, South Australian firefighters, but we could share. Um, what's happening, we're getting simultaneous fire seasons. Everybody's getting large fires at the same time. So it's restricting our ability to share. And internationally, we get all of our large firefighting aircraft, bar one, that's based in New South Wales, um, on lease from the Northern northern Hemisphere, um, US and Canada and their fire seasons are getting longer. So there in California they're talking about a year round fire season now. So access to that equipment's likely to become more and more restricted.
0: Mm. It's hugely problematic. So are there the resources then because this sharing arrangement, you know, historically, you know, sounded like it made sense, but going forward th- this is not gonna work.
1: Look, um, it's a difficult question to... It's not a difficult question to answer, actually. The answer is, well, you're dead right. Anybody who looks at the problem can see we're going to increasingly have um, fire situations across multiple states. Everyone will bring their own resources home, won't be able to assist each other, and there'll be no international assistance available either. Uh, That's emerging. Um, Do you just throw more equipment, more aircraft... That will assist a bit. But the basic problem, um, we, we're going to have to harden our infrastructure. So homes, bushfire standards for homes are going to have to increase. Um, homes built to the Australian standard 3959 building in bushfire prone areas um, burnt down in Victoria in 2009 because the conditions were just so extreme. So we'll see cost of homes become more, community infrastructure cost will increase we'll have to look at shelters for people that are hardened so that they can survive major firestorms Um, so there's a whole range of impacts and what I and other former fire chiefs have been trying to get through to our Prime Minister and government is you need to take action on the basic problem that creates this join with other like-minded countries in the world and there's some major ones that aren't doing anything, of course, but try to drive down emissions so that we... You know, this is just after one degree of warming. Mm. If we go to two or three, I can't personally imagine what the fire situation's going to be like.
0: No, it's quite grim, and some of the things that you were describing there about shelters, et cetera, I mean, this is sounding like the need that happened in wartime, you know, talking about bombing shelters. I mean, we're talking about fire shelters, but, but it's that kind of, of extreme that we're looking at, isn't it?
1: Well, look, it certainly is. And in, in the introduction, you talked about um, the early fire season this year. So on September the 6th, we had fire danger indexes in southeast or southern Queensland and northern New South Wales that had never been recorded in history in september and it was the 6th of september the first week so we had catastrophic and extreme fire dangers across huge areas and of course massive fires just went wherever they wanted to um, because firefighters on the ground were basically powerless so just they had to protect themselves protect lives and protect as much property as they could Um, a lot of those fires are still burning there's a couple of hundred thousand hectares of land a in northern New South Wales still about um, 30 odd fires uncontained today so I, I hate to think what's going to happen as the temperature gets warmer and warmer because Bureau of meteorology's predicted heat wave after heat wave this year because of Indian Ocean conditions uh, Antarctic southern Annular mode things like that firefighters are looking at all of this data I'm just shaking their heads and saying, "Well, it's this bad now. Imagine coming up to Christmas."
0: Mm. And what you know, you've been in the services. You're still, I'm sure, connected to a lot of people in there. I mean, what are they? What are they attributing these things to? They're not just thinking this has come out of nothing
1: look at it it's an interesting question because most firefighters are very task focused they get a call to a fire they go to the fire they do everything they can to put it out um increasingly people are becoming exhausted and Mm. i i've deployed to two major fires in the north in february and march this year near Glen Innes and um in varel there's fires up there again so i'm going up again this this week to help out they were just exhausted. They'd had months and months of fighting fires and they had a reprieve of about four months and now they're back up there now, the same people coming off their farms, coming out of their towns. And it's, so they're starting to ask questions because so, in the past they'd say, look, it's just fires. Yes, they're intense. But you're getting more and more firefighters coming back saying, how can a fire crown up into the treetops when it's 10 degrees um, at 3 o'clock in the morning. How does that happen? Why, why is the fuel so dry? Why, um, why are these fires so hard to put out? Why, you know, why, why? Why? Um, why are we getting fire danger indexes so far off the scale, temperatures 10 and 12 degrees above average um, day after day? There's something wrong. So there's, there's a dawning realisation that the system, the, the weather system's, are changing and people are asking a lot more questions and they're saying, well, yeah, if it happened one-off, that's an outlier. This is now, as you said, the new normal.
0: Yes. And look, I mean, you know, I also think there's um, a, a really worrying aspect of, of that fatigue is that and a lot of these services, you know, have a have a strong core of volunteers. People get to a limit and employers get to a limit and when you know, historically, people have, have been in these um, volunteer fire services. They have a kind of a, a parameters around what they feel that expectation will be. But those expectations are, are starting to kind of go out the window, aren't they? Well, they are out the window.
1: Well, look, uh, and that's exactly the case. And that's why um, every few days there's plane loads of firefighters going from Sydney, um, but they're drawing them from the south coast, the western divisions, coming to Sydney, flying up to the north coast to jump on local trucks and also additional trucks have sent up because the locals have to get a rest and and I, you know, in March I was up at the Torrington fire um, near Glen Innes and I I took over from people who'd been on the ground for over 30 hours and they were just totally exhausted and a month before they'd been fighting the other fires near Inverell. So it's taking its toll and you know, back to that question, what can we do? Um, yeah, I, I actually don't know, um, but it's, it's going to be about hardening infrastructure. As I said, community safety approaches, some strengthening of the equipment that we have. Um, large firefighting aircraft do assist the firefighters on the ground, but every firefighter will tell you they don't put out fires. They can only take the sting out of them, the intensity allow them to get in. They do help save property. So we need the federal government to step up and stop abrogating their responsibilities as they have since 2003 in that space and assist the states and territories to try and get a, not to get ahead of the game because they won't, but just to catch up.
0: Yeah, and there's a um, certainly a, a missing in action um from the from the federal government so the resourcing is mainly coming from a state level and are state governments kind of seeing this is not adequate and, and we really need to to put more money and resources into this
1: look i i can't comment for the state governments but i i know in new south wales state government has been stepping up to the mark they uh, funded a 737, 15,000 litre water bombing aircraft with another lead aircraft that goes with it. There's um, lots of good equipment. But look at the fires we have. Are these are measures like that actually going to make that much of a difference? They will make some difference in saving property um, in of dry conditions. And, um, you know, people might say, oh, it's the drought. Well, the one degree average increase um, year-round increases evaporation. And the Bureau of Meteorology will tell you about soil dryness. It's so much drier this time around. Yes, we get droughts in Australia, but this one is a doozy.
0: Mm. And Look, we know that these things are linked. And um, it was interesting, I was in Queensland recently and that called them Phrygian area where those fires came through. And it was well, it was really interesting, a couple of elements. One, how the the kind of gossip grapevine went around and and the number of things that were supposedly burnt down and which in the light of day proved not to be the case, which was fantastic. But B, it kind of you've kind of got to sometimes wonder what has to happen for people to kind of wake up uh, when something is so close like that. And in a community like that, which is effectively on the beachfront, uh, where there's not, you know, you don't kind of expect those things so much. And um, it was just kind of really seemed to bring it home to people. This doesn't isn't something that's just off in some rural area. Uh, and for me, I was kind of wondering how many things have to happen before people start joining the dots.
1: Well, look, it's a, and it's a well-known phenomena and the Bushfire and Natural Hazards Cooperative Research Centre has actually done research into how many people in bushfire prone areas have a plan. And the answer is not many uh, because, of course, it will never happen to me. Mm. Um, so today I've been on my roof clearing of leaves I live in a bushland area um, and my wife said to me well if we get a big fire and we're due for one we're overdue for one where I live um, you're not going to be here <laughs> so I've got to I'm getting get my your jobs done before you leave a weekend <laughs> to train them what to do but um, so I've got to keep it safe but, but you, people do need to plan but um, we also we have to plan for the people who don't have a plan and uh, that's unfortunately going to be the majority um most of eastern australia in the past only had major bushfires maybe once a decade um i think the level of understanding in the community now is increasing because you know just look at tasmania they used to be every 30 years or so now it's just about every year they have major fires people are waking up and saying this is a problem and that's how we save lives and homes is community awareness. Uh, you'll find the fire services do a lot more there now with emergency warnings, with um, text messages and voice messages on landlines when there's emergency warnings, et cetera. Uh, so we've changed the paradigm of how we used to fight fires. Before 2009, Black Saturday it was just, it's all on suppression and operations. And we realise that some days we can't do much at all. What we have to do is share what little information we have and give advice to people about what they should do. And that's when we hope they have a plan. Um, They get this information, go, right, where's our plan? It's an emergency warning. We'll stay in place or we'll go to the local oval or whatever. And, look, people really need to wake up. This year could be... I'm hoping it rains like it did last year in New South Wales around October, November, when the atmosphere gets quite unstable, but um, all the indications are that that probably won't happen. And if it doesn't, um, I'm, I'm quite frightened, actually.
0: Mm. Listeners, we're talking to Greg Mullins, who is a climate counsellor and is also the former Commissioner of Fire and Rescue New South Wales. Now, Greg... Um, you have part of a group, Emergency Leaders for Climate Action. Can you tell us a bit about that group? Who are the members and the objectives and what sort of traction you're getting?
1: Yes, well, look, um, in March last year, we had a federal election coming up. Climate change was a major differentiation between the political parties. I had a couple of conversations with former colleagues and said, uh, look, I'm thinking maybe we should highlight this bushfire problem. But... If we do, it's going to be be seen as being overtly um, political. And as a public servant, uh, when we're employed by our various governments, you you must be apolitical. You don't make party political statements, or um, you know it must be on the about government policy. And if you don't like that, you resign. You you go. Um, we we're unrestrained by that. And look, a few of them said, yeah, this is a great idea. We should put out a statement. We should try to meet the Prime Minister. And I rang around and um, 23 colleagues, and I know that there were quite a number of different political views amongst that group, but every single one of them said we have to do something. This is getting out of control, and there's so much denialism out there. Um, How can intelligent people either not understand the science or tell lies and say that it's not happening, we must do something. So we we formed this Emergency Leaders for Climate Action, former chiefs and deputy chiefs of every um, urban and rural fire service in Australia, every state and territory, um, national parks and forestry firefighting units and some SES, former SES commissioners, And um, we called them, we put out a statement. We asked, I wrote to the Prime Minister three times now. Um, We've corresponded with Minister Taylor. We've just been fobbed off. They're not interested because um, we're talking about something that this government uh, feel they've done enough on because they're going to meet their Paris commitments in a canter, apparently, even though our emissions are going up every year. So um, they don't want to talk to us.
0: Mm. And, and the frustrating thing is, I mean, you mentioned a number of things there around the loss of property, um, the, the increase in building standards and design to even have people live in areas that maybe they sh- possibly shouldn't be living in. So this is the frustrating thing is there is a cost to all these things and every time there is a major, whether it be a flood event, a fire event, there's huge cost to that, and that gets passed on, whether it's through increased um, insurance premiums to consumers, whether it's in the rates to rebuild roads, bridges, sewage treatment plants, everything else, these things all have a cost. inaction has a cost. But we don't you know that's not captured in the same way that it should be. Um, and as as things keep going forward, insurance costs will keep going up. Cost to, to local government will keep going up as we need to put this infrastructure back into place?
1: Well well, exactly and look you mentioned insurance there and that's a key resilience measure in communities the ability to rebuild and the insurance industry plays a key role in that and um, you know there are often are a lot of people in fire prone areas that are underinsured or uninsured and community usually steps up but look if the insurance industry at some stage steps away from certain areas and says, look, it's too fire-prone. We're not going to insure anybody there. And we've um, seen that and example
0: in flood, in flood areas. Where, That's right. You know, I am just going kind to
1: of say in some floodplains, yeah. so they just say, well, look, if you choose to live there, don't ask us to help because um, you're too much of a risk. If that happens with bushfire, um, that you'll have... You know, imagine if you had a California and you just mm-hmm. and you couldn't rebuild. You know, the, you, um, it's it's just a very scary scenario. So, uh, yes, it does require government coordination, government action, but they they do like to hide behind the Constitution that says emergency management is a state and territory responsibility.
0: Mm. Yeah, well, as you said, let's let's hope for some rain because um, this issue's not going to go away and it's very serious. I mean, you know, we had the reality in some of those southern Queensland towns where they're almost out of drinking water. So the prospect, and I'm thinking of places like Stanthorpe where there were fires coming in, and effectively... There's no water. There's no water to fight these fires. Now, obviously, I'm no fire expert, but I'm presuming that water is a fairly big component in fighting fires.
1: Well, look, there's techniques called dry firefighting that you can employ um, with low-intensity fires. So basically, people with tools who go in and cut trails and uh, they might backburn from the trail to take away the fuel as the main fire approaches. And that that often works in very mild conditions. Um, but with the intense dryness not just from the drought but even outside drought because of that evaporation I was talking about in crisp soil um, dryness which means the vegetation is far drier and ignites more easily um, spot fires from sparks just start very easily and it's almost impossible to hold a fire line without water so you can use bulldozers hand tools but um, these fires, we had one up at uh, oh, near um, Rapville, the fire west of Ratville, I've forgotten the name of the. I think it was the Drake Fire. It had been under control for a week. Major winds came up, and off it went. Uh, one spark into the bush, and mm. another couple of thousand hectares that day. So, this is what we're up against. And if there's no dams for helicopters to fill up their buckets. Um, you know, the helicopters can't work. And I saw this when I was up in there in February and March. We struggled to find places to refill our bushfire tankers.
0: Yeah, it's pretty... Um, that must be very frustrating for the people on the ground trying, trying to do their jobs. Just incredibly frustrating.
1: Well, look, it is. And that's why the authorities are saying, so you'll hear the Rural Fire Service Commissioner a couple of times has said, um on media that uh, these fires will burn for months because uh, it it will take significant rain to put them out because there's thousands of kilometers of fire edge that need to be secured and it's basically impossible for human beings to do that in that sort of sort of terrain Um, they can backburn, they can doze trails but when a big wind comes up even a week later as we've seen and um, one spark that's
0: off again mm, and certainly at those fires at atrygian um, you know the um the ember shower was sort of like supposedly one or two kilometers ahead of the fire front um and just it was like raining raining embers, incredible yeah yeah,
1: look um, that that's happened over the years with various fires, but queensland. Mm. Sunshine Coast near the coast, really? Um, no, <laughs> not not fires like that. But so so things have changed. Um, it's a sustained change. It's since the 1970s. It's got worse and worse over the last 10 years. It's escalated even more. And um, look, the people, not, the people who know the science and know the fires going back half a century, like me, we can see what's happening. You correlate that with the science and it's one of those aha moments where you shake your head and go, oh dear. Mm.
0: Well, let's hope that more people have those aha moments and in this country that needs to translate to uh, political pressure and political change because um, unfortunately it's still a partisan issue here. Um, it's not in many places. Um and we're not, we're really just dealing, you know, the fire is just one symptom. Um, there's many others, but until we get that fundamental change, we're we are unfortunately sort of tinkering at the edges. And as you say, these fires that we have to wait for rain to burn out, I mean, it, it's kind of exacerbating the um, vicious cycle because then we've got more land cleared and more deforestation effectively by, by these fires that are just, you know, firefighters can't get in and and have to let um, burn out
1: Well look and and I suppose one thing we didn't discuss that when you said that it reminded me of places like um, World Heritage Areas in Tasmania the Highland Nature Reserve near Dungog um, Yolunga west of Mackay we have rainforests burning now and the carbon record and the tree rings say they've never experienced fires of this uh, this extreme as, um, as have occurred since 2006 in Tasmania. So trees like Huon pines live for 3,000 years wiped out in some areas. They won't grow back because they're not adapted to fire. And some um, rainforest species up near Dorigo, I think I might have said Dungog before, but Dorigo, um and up near Yulunga, they're likely to die and not regenerate because... They've never experienced extreme fire. So you're you dead right. It's, it's changing ecosystems, changing the environment, and um, just more and more effects.
0: Mm. Well, I really appreciate you coming on, Greg, and talking about this really hugely important issue. Um, it's a good... Uh Good point to finish on to remind people to uh, you know make sure that they have a fire plan. Take those precautionary measures such as you know clearing around their property and the gutters etc. Uh, what are some good resources for listeners out there to to access of um, their local fire services that might help them make those plans?
1: Well, look um, wherever you live, uh, the the rural fire service in your area, so Victoria, the CFA. CFS in South Australia, Department of Fire and Emergency, Emergency Services in West Australia, Rural Fire Service in New South Wales, um, ACT and um, Queensland and uh, Bushfires Northern Territory, Rural Fire and Rescue in Northern Territory. Go to their websites. There's excellent... Oh, Tasmania Fire Service, of course. There's excellent materials there, checklists, plans. So download it. And if you... Even within half a kilometre of bush, um, you, you need to be thinking about what might happen this year. So, um, and I, after this, I'll be back up my ladder <laughs> doing my gutters.
0: Well, we appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. And, um, yes, yeah, sounds like you need to get back out there and get busy before you head off to um, help in other areas. So we really appreciate the effort um, that, you've, that you're have that you doing. And, um these, you, you know, you've got a wealth of experience and it'd be good if the powers that be actually listen to that.
1: Hopefully they will. Hopefully yeah. the tide of public opinion. Um, and, and I hope it doesn't take a disaster mm. and whereby people say, we told you so. I'd hate for that to happen. I hope they wake up first.
0: Yeah, don't we all. Okay, appreciate your time today, Greg. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Erin. Nice to talk to you. Bye-bye. Cyclones Cast is pretty grim. climate change. China.
2: Do you ever feel like just switching off? Well don't. Switch on to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show every Monday at five PM on 3CR and beat the doom and gloom to find out the latest actions and research in your community. VZE Radio at 5 PM on Monday. Turn the tide, literally.
1: You're listening to 3CR
2: Community Radio.
3: 855 AM.
0: Listeners, you're on the Beyond Zero Emissions show and my name is Erin Jones and I'm very pleased to have on the line today Tim Chitterton. And Tim is from the Queensland Rural Fire Service and he is the Regional Manager of the South Western Region. Welcome, Tim. Thank you. Tim, can you just describe for our listeners what your role is?
2: Uh, yeah, so my role is to oversee a small number of staff uh, that look after the volunteer Rural Fire Brigades across Southwest Queensland. So we look after about 312 uh, Rural Fire Brigades and uh, just over 6,000 volunteers.
0: Right. And this year we had a record early start to the fire season, um, particularly in, in Queensland and uh, northern New South Wales. Um could you give us a bit of an update on what the fire situation is today? Are there still any active fires burning?
2: Yeah, so we've got a number of uh, fires currently burning within the southwest region. Uh, one uh, just south of uh, Warwick, uh, towards the New South Wales border in an area known as Dalveen. Uh, and we've also got a fire uh, to the east of Warwick, uh, which we've been calling the Swan Fells Fire, that's been burning for about three to four weeks now in inaccessible country. Um, and we've got crews monitoring both those fires, working with uh, our partners in uh, Parks and Wildlife, uh, and also the landowners.
0: Now, for our southern listeners, because we're broadcasting out of Melbourne, although we do podcast nationally, just describe to us, um, you know, the extent and and um, what those fires were in Queensland that uh, started so early this year.
2: Yeah, so we've seen some um, some fairly extreme fire weather. Uh, early in the season. So in the first week of September, uh, we saw catastrophic or, as uh, Victorian listeners would know, code red conditions uh, across large sections of southern Queensland. Um, those sort of conditions normally uh, in Queensland, we may only experience for one day or even half a day once in the fire season, late, much later in the year. But we saw a number of days back to back of those conditions. And we've also seen uh, additional days uh, later in uh, September and through October of of catastrophic fire weather across southern Queensland, which is, is quite unheard of.
0: So, in, in your previous experience in Queensland, what what was and and what is today considered kind of the, the, the routine or the regular fire season?
2: Uh, look, our regular fire season would see um, some very high fire dangers into severe fire dangers. And certainly, severe fire dangers would be, um, you know, quite a busy day for us and we'd certainly be really monitoring the conditions Uh, We've got to the point where we had a a severe fire weather warning on the weekend on Saturday and and in our briefings on Friday we discussed it being a routine day and that crews would be available to respond as always uh, and we dealt with those incidents as if we were in sort of low, moderate or high fire danger conditions. So it really in a very short period of time has become the new normal
4: for us.
0: Yeah and so you know those fires were, were really just in that first week of spring so what historically has been the the calendar period that that's been considered the fire season in Queensland?
2: Uh, we begin to see fires um, sort of in the north of Queensland in July and August, and into the southern part of Queensland that towards the end of August, and early September. But really, the severe weather we don't get until October or November, um, traditionally. But yeah, we've seen that in August and into early September this year, and it's continued right through and. Um, it looks that at this point it's continuing through New South Wales and uh, over the weekend, again this morning, we've sent additional crews into New South Wales to support their operations and uh, it just seems to be a continual ongoing uh, run that we're in at the moment.
0: Mm. So, so those um, early fires that happened in, in that time, what, what were the kind of losses?
2: Um, so there was, uh, I believe, to date... Uh, Fire season. There's been a, about 20 homes lost right across Queensland, um, and a number of uh, sheds and structures and outbuildings and farm equipment and things like that as well. Um, four of those were at the, the Stanthorpe fires, which is part of the southwestern region that we saw those um, catastrophic conditions in, in early September. Uh, and that fire moved very, very quickly through landscape, and in fact, uh, ended up in the township of Stanthorpe which is of a town of about 5,000 people. So we had trucks in the streets of the town defending homes as that fire came into the town.
0: Now, now that town has been um, suffering with, with great water restrictions as well, hasn't it? So how does that work when you've got an area that's on really limited water supply?
2: Yeah, so the, the township of Stanthorpe uh, at this stage is expected to uh, potentially run out of uh, potable drinking water by the end of the year. Um, and we've been working very closely with the Southern Downs Council in that, in that part of the world, uh, working to identify additional water sources uh, outside of the town that may be suitable, so either bore water or recycled water. Um, we've also, uh, across our state uh, structure, worked to move um, a large water tanker out of uh, Brisbane and station it uh, in the Southern Downs, and we've put additional uh, water carrying support in place Uh, for our crews but we've also um, stepped up our dry firefighting operations so on days of severe fire weather we're putting uh, heavy machinery on immediate response and on standby so bulldozers and graders and that type of thing um, to attend incidents quickly um, and try and steer them back into the hills away from homes and away from uh, any infrastructure so that way the fire can be allowed to burn in those extreme conditions and we try and round it up when it comes back down out of the hills.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's pretty confronting for for, for everyone involved in the residents when when they know that water supplies are so low and they've got this imminent fire threat, isn't it?
2: It is, yeah, and it's been a a challenge for us in terms of ensuring our crews understand those implications of of water usage and that we're doing the best we can with the water we've got, Um, but also ensuring that we've identified those additional water sources to ensure that we don't run out of water and we have adequate water for firefighting. And so far, those plans are working, um, and we're managing not to impact on the town supply too much.
0: Yeah. So you, you described at the s- start of our conversation that there's a, a small number of, of staff, but there's also a, a vast number of volunteers. What's that kind of breakdown of numbers?
2: Ah, uh, yeah. So we've got uh, we've got nine uh, uniformed operational staff in the region here, uh, and four administrative staff, and then we've got six and a half thousand volunteers. So. Um, we've got a pretty fair area to uh, cover. The, the landmass we look after is larger than the state of Victoria. Um, and, yeah, we do a fair bit of travelling to try and make sure we can support the volunteers as best we can.
0: Yeah. Now, what are, what are you finding in terms of, um, you know, volunteer retention? And do you foresee issues in the future with the increasing workload on volunteers and with, the, with the longer and more intense season?
2: Uh, we're seeing that probably more uh, in our volunteers that have taken on um, significant leadership roles, so in our, our uh, group officers and our first officers, where um, they're being called on more and more to, to lead and manage their brigades. Um, in uh, the, the run of the mill, I suppose to say firefighter, um, we're trying to manage their fatigue a fair bit and rotate them around and move crews from uh, elsewhere in the state and also elsewhere in our region. Uh, to give crews a break and rest them but we actually are seeing quite a good influx of new volunteers wanting to join uh, the Rural Fire Service and be part of it. They see the need in the community particularly at the moment and they're trying to get in and be part and help out which is really helping us.
0: Mm, great. And what's the kind of time frame between someone showing interest and you know getting the necessary training to be able to, to be equipped in the field?
2: Uh, at the moment, fairly quickly, because as we're getting new people join, we're trying to get them trained um, as quick as we can, and um, get them sort of available to respond, so we, we can have them normally within a couple of months ready to go and fight fires. So people that have joined joined us in the last month or so will be ready for the the next sort of big hit of the season at the end of November, December, hopefully.
0: Okay. Well, that's that's good to hear. Um, Because that's a real concern that I think, you know, as we go forward and and kind of this new normal of of more intense weather and, and, um, you know, just the absolute dryness that there is and the the fuel on the ground, that whether or not, you know, that that primarily volunteer service is just going to start to feel a bit overwhelmed.
2: Yeah, and as I said, we're trying to rotate around the region and move crews to support that. Uh, and the challenge comes where uh, you know today we've sent two strike teams to New South Wales of volunteers, uh, and that's about the sixth or seventh I think we've sent this year already, um, and that starts to uh, to test some of the volunteers' friendships as well, and with their employers and mm. even with their families where they're away a lot, and uh, they all want to help, and we want to support our our colleagues in a state, but that will become challenging as the year goes on as we move into the Victorian and then into the Tasmanian season and. The last few years we've sent a lot of crews to Tasmania. So, um, yeah, once we can get through the season in Queensland, we've still got plenty of, plenty of time to go here. Um, we've then looked to where we've got to pay back a few favours of the people that have come and helped us already.
0: Yeah, and I mean, as we go forward, that overlapping of, of seasons, um, you know, seems to be coming... I'm, I'm, you know, from an outsider looking, that becomes problematic not only with the human resources, but, but the machinery and and um, kind of coordination of that. And I know uh, I was actually recently in um, Parryian when those fires came through that call them Parryian oh, yeah. area in Queensland, and uh, you know they had the big water bombers. But my understanding is that's even a shared resource with America, so we start to have fairly problematic. Um, things when we're getting a lot of these overlapping seasons
2: yeah and we're working with um a number of our contractors who also have contracts in new south wales and and in victoria and even in western australia for the fire seasons where uh we're saying we need you to stay longer and they're saying well we've got these other commitments uh in a state so we're working with those contractors to try and work out a bit of a medium where you know everyone gets an opportunity to get the resources mm.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's only so, many, so much to go around. What's your, I mean, you, you're a volunteer service, but I'm presuming you're know you you're also getting a fair bit of um, state government support. I mean, is that adequate? I mean, is, is there planning going forward um, to up that resource?
2: Yeah, there's, um, there's significant planning going on. And, and in Queensland, we're quite fortunate where the Rural Fire Service forms part of uh, Queensland Fire and Emergency Services, which includes the State Emergency Service and the Fire and Rescue Service. So it's not just the Rural Fire Service that is battling these fires. We're joined um, by our colleagues from Fire and Rescue who have a large number of staff uh, across the state who are able to support in both in incident management and in firefighters. Uh, and this year, probably more so than any other year, our colleagues from the State Emergency Service who have been working, um, I won't say on the front line, but certainly one step back from the front line. So the. The SES have been doing all the refilling of water bombing aircraft and all of our air operations coordination uh, on at incidents. They're also uh, supporting with our incident management centres and our structures and they're providing uh, all of that logistical support, so moving trucks from region to region, um, servicing trucks overnight, getting them ready to go so firefighters can rest. Uh, they really have had amazing support from all of the agencies across not just our department, but across all government departments, uh, this year as we continue to fight the fires.
0: Mm, great. Look, there was some um, well particular issues in New South Wales going back a, not that long ago, um, with some conflict between the Rural Fire Service administration and some local farmers, where the fire service had just said we're pulling we're pulling out of these areas. Um, and some of the volunteers just sort of went, no, we're, well, we're not. And, and there was an inquiry going into that. And I'm sure you're probably more familiar with that than I am. But is, have we seen any of that kind of um, conflict in, in Queensland around you know, where those resources go and whether, in fact, um, you know, the higher up take, take a position on the safety or otherwise of going in and fighting some of these extreme fires?
2: uh we work uh we work very closely with the landowners uh and at, right from day one of our basic training, it's drilled into our crews that um you know he who owns the fuel owns the fire, so the landowner is really ultimately in charge of the fire we're there to support them and work with them uh, in saying that though we will take no hesitations in putting the safety of our firefighters first, so if we feel that the conditions Uh, too dangerous to have crews in a location, we will not have crews there. And if if those landowners choose that they want to continue to fight the fire, that is their choice. But certainly we take safety very seriously uh, and it's something we're quite proud of in the fact that we went through some very serious fire weather and catastrophic fire conditions with only very minor injuries to firefighters. So uh, we'll take that very seriously when we have to make those decisions. And unfortunately, sometimes, Uh, They might be seen not as favourable decisions, but they're in the interest of everyone's safety at the time.
0: Yeah. Okay, well look, I really appreciate you coming on, Tim, and telling us about that. So you said there's still some fires burning. What are the level of of those that are currently still burning?
2: Uh, All those fires are only at notification level, so at our lowest level of warning. Um, But we are asking anyone in those areas just to remain vigilant uh, to the conditions, as you know, they may change, but predominantly fires currently burning are burning in inaccessible country, and we're just working on containment strategies to, to help them.
0: Right. And, you know, we know that a lot of Queensland is in drought, and I suppose, you know, those conditions certainly exacerbate this fire season. So what's the season looking forward? Um, what are you expecting?
2: Uh, with, with our discussions with the Bureau of Meteorology, we're really looking at, the conditions we've got currently to continue uh, into the end of the year, um, they're forecasting less than average rainfall, higher than normal maximum temperatures, so certainly until significant rainfall is received, um, we will continue to uh, fight fires and see the, the very high and severe fire dangers across the whole of the southwest.
0: Mm. Yes, not looking very good going forward. and. This seems to, you know, be ever increasing the new normal. So. Yeah, unfortunately,
2: yeah, I think it is the new normal.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and look, what are you people on the ground? Um, you know, are they kind of attributing this? What, what's the the talk in, on the, um, you know, amongst the volunteers? Um,
2: a lot of our volunteers, of course, are, are primary producers themselves. Um, they own property and you know farms in their local communities, and they most of them who have been in the districts a long, long time, and multiple generations are saying it's some of the worst conditions that they can certainly remember. Um, and even you know history and and records they've got on their property say that it's probably some of the worst conditions they've seen in a long time. So it's yeah being compared to the droughts of the early nineties um, across Queensland, and yeah, they they took a long time to break, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. All right, well, I appreciate your time today, Tim. Thanks for giving us an update and uh, keep up the good work for yourself and and all your volunteers. No worries.
2: Thanks, Aaron.
0: Thank you. Bye-bye.
3: Standing on the reels, but force that always feels you too, and everything else feels we could make a difference. And our ideas of y'all are in love and falling victim to our fears. A... What's a nice girl like you doing here at the beginning of the end? You at the party, the beginning of the end. You see that I'm not quite the solid rock that I pretend. And I cannot be a barricade, the savior of your soul. Cause I'm not built to withstand these extremes of hot and cold. So don't keep my faith for you, you are an sound of vulture's wings you took me to your heart and then you took me to your bed but i'm so sorry darling i'm afraid you've been misled so then i chased your to through the weather not it's sped, but i couldn't find the answers in between your broken legs perhaps it's
0: So that was Gentle Ben and a Sensitive Side with the beginning of the end, which, um, given our previous couple of discussions, um, hopefully it is not uh, telling of the future. But it is a personal favourite of mine, that song. So it was, and anyone who's a regular listener might have heard that one before. So I hope you enjoyed that bit of music. Now, let's get on to the last interview that we've got today. and um, about a, uh, a solution that's um, a great thing and happening in Australia. So let's get on to hearing that. Listeners, you're on the Beyond Zero Emissions show, and my name is Erin Jones, and I'm very pleased to have on the line Greg McGarvey. We've spoken to Greg a couple of times about an exciting development that uh, he is heading up, which is the manufacture production of electric vehicles here in Australia, which is uh, wonderful um, to have that uh, happening onshore. So welcome, Greg, and um, pleased to have you back on the show.
4: Thanks, Aaron. Very um, happy to be here. It's always good talking
0: to you. <laughs> That's good. Um, now you're based in Adelaide these days, and are and having um, taking quite, you know, strong steps forward and um, getting the uh, vehicles happening and um, starting to get pre sales and everything. So I understand you've just recently signed some memorandums of understanding with both Flinders University and the University of Queensland. Can you tell our listeners about what those memorandum of understanding are trying to achieve. Yeah,
4: Yeah, thanks, Erin. Actually, they're very important to us because it means that we've got um, new research happening all the time based on what's already taken place. And what the real advantage to us is that a lot of the research that's already been done. So basically the uh, footstool for it all has come out of Germany and Taiwan and we're benefiting from that previous research, and we just add to it and build on it, and we Australianise it. And um, Flinders University, magic group to work with. They've got, um, you know, they're passionate, and they're focused, and they're really pleased, actually, to be part of the rebirth of a different auto industry. Um, And funnily enough, the fact that the government's let the auto industry die means that we're in a better position than if we had other auto industry in the country. And um, there's no other developed country that hasn't got its own auto manufacturer, and Australia uh, is the only one that hasn't. It will have soon. Next year we'll be starting to build.
0: Well, I suppose there's been a bit of a vacuum created there for you guys to step into, isn't there?
4: There has, but it hasn't been an easy vacuum to occupy. (laughs) anyway, we're making do with it. And uh, the other thing, of course, we signed an agreement with UQ, and we're pretty excited about that because we're engaged with their bioengineering and nanotechnology department and they're working on green plastics for us. So yes. that means that our vehicle will not rely on any petroleum products or anything allied to petroleum products uh, for its manufacture down the track.
0: Wow, that's pretty interesting. And and, and your vehicle particularly is, is quite dynamic and revolutionary, I suppose, in the way that it's c- constructed, isn't it?
4: It is. There's no one else doing it, and now Australia's actually been put into the top position in the world with this new technology. It's one of the cheapest, quickest, and most nimble technologies to use. And um, what it does, it creates a very light vehicle, the perfect platform for electric vehicles. And um, it opens up great opportunities for us in Australia. You know, we'll be exporting the vehicle as a smart pack. We're calling it a, a business on wheels, and it moves goods people and energy and future vehicles will be fitted with bi-directional charge points so that means that a homeowner, doesn't matter what happens out in the outside world in terms of um, power outages, you'll have your own energy pack at home and if you're, if you're careful you are up, up to five days of energy just off your vehicle.
0: Mm. And we know that um, that certainly happened in Japan after the um, uh, tsunami and natural disasters over there quite a, f- a few years back now where people uh, did use their cars effectively as giant batteries for their homes, didn't they?
4: No, that's right. And there's a real lesson in all of this out of California. You know, last year they had all those fires burnt down about 24,000 houses. They were created by a local utility. whose power lines blew down on a windy, hot day and started the fires. And, uh, of course, there's a lot of insurance claims out of that. This year, they weren't going to take the risk of leaving the, the power running through the lines on hot, windy days. They turned it off. Eight hundred and eighty thousand customers without without power. So mm-hmm. that's a bit of a political problem for the politicians in the area, and EVs are actually the solution.
0: Yeah, so that so with UQ, you're looking at, at um, the, the plast- Well, the the construction. What about with Flinders? The green plastics. The green plastics. Yeah,
4: with yeah. Flinders, yeah, they're, they're they're in the uh, autonomous. You know, they're running autonomous vehicle trials at the moment. So. Mm-hmm they will come into play with us down the track because our vehicle will also become autonomous. You know, you'll be able to go shopping and say go and park in parking basics six and all the way it'll go. And uh, and when you come out with your shopping, you'll just call it up, be like Tesla's doing. We're just a little bit behind Tesla, but we think they're taking good strides. And um, other things that we're working on is uh, in the actual skeleton itself, which is a carbon fibre composite. Uh, they'll be working very carefully on automated methods for building their skeleton.
0: Okay, fantastic. So look, we're um, running tight for time today, Greg. So no, if people it. are interested in finding out more, what's the best way that they can do that?
4: Look, Erin, the best thing they can do is get onto our website, ACE which is Australian Clean Energy, hyphen ev for electric vehicles, au, And we're taking reservations on the vehicle Later this month, uh, we had someone that snuck in through our firewall and put money on it already. So they must be pretty keen. We're trying to try and find out now how they got in there. <laughs> What's
0: well, a good problem to have, Greg? Very good problem to have. <laughs>
4: <laughs> it is. Yeah, we're not we're not complaining.
0: <laughs> well, look, we look forward to staying in touch, and it's really exciting Thank to God. have local manufacturing of EVs, which are, you know, a big part of the um, solution. Good future for us. Yeah, yeah. great. Look, thanks for keeping track on us. Yeah, have no a good problem. Day. Okay, bye bye. So I hope you enjoyed today's show. A um, couple of quick announcements. The BZD discussion group is on November 11th, and that one's all about electric vehicles. As any regular would, listener will know, that's a pet project of mine. Uh, the other thing is that the Clean Energy Council have the All Energy Conference in the next couple of days in Melbourne. So if you're in the vicinity, check that out. It's free to attend. Now, coming up, we've got communication mixed down. Hope you enjoyed the show, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.
3: Cyclones. Is pretty
2: grim. Do you ever feel like just switching off? Well, don't. Switch on to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show every Monday at 5pm on 3CR and beat the doom and gloom to find out the latest actions and research in your community. VZE
4: Radio at 5pm on Monday. Turn the tide, literally.